You don't have a product, you're in your early 20s, you don't have really any working experience, and yet you convince Kleiner and Sequoia to invest in your round and you ultimately raise $19 million. That's what Shane figured out. I met about 250 different investors, all of whom said no. So it's definitely a period from maybe investor 50 to 100 where you start questioning, you know, is this the right thing uh, to be doing? Like, why am I even trying this in the first place? But yet he kept going and he decided to fly to the US to just meet with investors in the Bay Area and spend some of the final money that he had to, to make it happen. Screening people that you want to work with, whether it's investors or, or employees, is just sort of actually riffing with them on what a specific problem that you're dealing with is or thinking about new ideas for things that could be built and so on. And just really hard to do that if you're not spending a lot of time with people in person. In person's great, but I still needed to know, how did you convince them that you were the right founder when you hadn't worked for a security company in the past and you didn't have a product? You know, I think even even before I started Evervault, I'd been working in encryption uh, in a personal capacity for, you know, probably five or six years. So it's a pretty boring problem space for most people. And I think um, there's a certain sense of, uh, you know, if, if you're an investor and you're looking at a founder who spent five years in a space as boring as encryption, you sort of have to question the like neuroticism there and you know why they're actually focusing on this and i think if somebody can kind of commit commit themselves to that for a period of time that long uh, especially when they're a teenager well it's definitely a teenager but sort of late teens um when people tend to be a little bit jumpy uh, about what their interests are um i think that commitment was probably was probably the main thing shane has an incredible story you got to listen to the full thing boom this is the Top VC Podcast, and I'm your host, Adam O'Donnell, based in San Francisco. I'm on a mission to help founders oversubscribe their next round by learning from top VCs and entrepreneurs. Evervault is an encryption platform for developers. Uh, we're basically trying to make it really easy for anybody who's building software that collects sensitive data uh, to collect that data, always have it encrypted, and still do stuff with it. Um, the problem with encryption so far is just that, it, that it's been extremely difficult to implement correctly. Um, and lots of people think that, you know, some encryption basically means that their entire software is secure. Um, encryption is like a superpower if it's implemented correctly and kind of mitigates a huge amount of risk from a security perspective, but um, it's very easy to uh, implement incorrectly and, and very hard to even understand in the first place. So we're trying to solve that. I, I love it. And how much have you raised and maybe named some of the investors? Uh, yeah, we've raised uh, about 19 19 and a half million dollars from investors like uh, Sequoia, Index Capital, Kleiner Perkins, and then angels like uh, Jeff Weiner, Dylan Field, uh, Alex Stamos, and Olivier Pommel from Datadog. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. I'm really excited to hear about your fundraising strategies, just some of the most impactful things that you found to get to that point. Uh, but would you first maybe tell us one of the, like a lower moment that you had in your most recent fundraising journey? Yeah, I mean, like, to be honest, I think the most difficult part of um, fundraising at Everbot so far has just been the very first check. Um, at the time, I was like a pretty young solo founder uh, based in Ireland, but traveling around the globe, just trying to you know get FaceTime with with people who were uh, writing checks in any way for pretty ambitious technical projects. Um, and it was super tough. I mean, uh, the first uh, two years of the company were just me trying to go around uh, getting a little bit of capital together because you know the technical challenge that we're trying to solve is is pretty significant uh, to the point that, you know, you need a very, very solid engineering team to even be able to build the first version of the product. Um, and I think that's, you know, in some ways that makes it really difficult, but in other ways it's a competitive advantage as well, because, you know, it's so difficult that very few people are trying it. Um, so long-term it's been great, but uh, yeah, in the early days, um, you know, I met about 250 different investors, all of whom said no. Um, you know, well, in, in the good instances, they said no. In the other instances, they kind of ghosted me or, um, yeah, just didn't really reply to any of my emails or, or text messages or whatever, uh, which is totally fine. But um, I think there's this sort of coming together moment when you, know, you get your first term sheet or your first interested party. Um, it's funny how, you know, many investors sort of talk about looking to invest in the best founders building the future. But uh, in practice, it's 
Um, yeah, they never want to be the first check. They always want to be the, the second or, or later check. Oh my gosh. I, I can only imagine how discouraging that would have been. Like what, what was the 249th investor? Like uh, what, what, what were you feeling in that moment? Like right before you had the, the final first yes. Yeah. I mean, I think um, there was definitely a period from sort of, I don't know, maybe investor 50 to hundred where you start questioning, you know, is this the right thing uh, to be doing? Like, why am I even trying this in the first place? But um, I think you get to a point where you've done it so many times that um, rejection is kind of empowering to a certain extent. Um, you, know, you know that you're kind of committing yourself to building a particular product or building a company. And the fact that investors aren't investing just isn't hugely important. You know, that'd be a totally different scenario if we were speaking with customers and customers weren't interested in the product, but um, there was clearly this like huge opportunity to build something interesting that customers really liked, valued and, and cared about. Um, so it was just very difficult to reconcile how that could be the case, but, you know, investors aren't necessarily investing in it um, for, you know, a whole plethora of reasons, but um, yeah, pretty, pretty disheartening, but I think uh, you get to a point where it kind of incrementally gets easier and easier. You know, I think a lot of people try to kind of reinvent the entire company every time they get a single note from an investor and they kind of pivot to an entirely new industry or, or whatever. But, um, you know, I guess the, the thing that most good investors are looking for is an interesting founder in a space that they actually care about. Um, yeah, the time horizons in venture are obviously extremely long. So they'd much rather back a founder who's building something that they can actually commit themselves to for, you know, 10 years or 20 years or, or more in certain cases. Um, and, you know, if you're kind of jumping around from idea to idea, the good investors aren't going to find that particularly compelling. Yeah. Uh, and ju you just like stayed at it like a dog with a bone, like just, you're not, you're not letting go. Um, what, what was the thing that broke through on that, that first investor? What was there something you changed in your strategy or was it more that they were just finally interested in the space? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it was, um, just sort of, I, I was really, really bad at qualifying investors where, um, you know, I just speak to anybody who had invested in a company before. And there was very, very little rigor around like who I should be speaking with. Um, you know, I always knew that Evervault was going to be a very long-term play, very technical, um, you know, selling to developers, all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, I was still speaking with, you know, random fintech angel investors in, in Belgium or whatever, which, you know, uh, if I was building a neobank or something, wouldn't have made sense. But for our product, it just didn't. So, um, you know, I, I sort of took a step back and thought about, you know, what investors do invest in these types of things. And, um, you know, I'd kind of grown up reading about all the sort of finding stories of, great technology companies like Google, Microsoft, Apple, and so on. Um, and, you know, the one thing that they all have in common is that they were based in the Bay Area. And it was actually one of the few places that I had, hadn't spent a huge amount of time in. So just decided to take a risk, um, honestly, using kind of like the last money I had to spend some time over in the Bay Area. Um, and you kind of realize that things come together very quickly when you're meeting people that are kind of aligned with what you're looking to build. And um, yeah, that's when Sequoia came in and led our seed round. Wow. So you're saying you you flew with whatever money you had left? To the bay. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what was know, that like? And what was that? Grotty. Yeah. I stayed in pretty grotty hotels. Um, you know, I'd visited the Bay Area a couple of times before, um, but, you know, more so in a, I guess, a, a personal context. And I wasn't building a company at the time. Um, and it's just, uh, it's pretty interesting because you're, it, it's one of the few places in the world where you can go to and in the space of a week, if you've never met anybody there before, um, you just really get to get to know people very quickly. And I think people are very open and, you know, just getting introductions from people is, uh, it, like it's not something that you ask for if you look at a place like europe typically you have to follow up like three times asking somebody to introduce you to somebody but uh, in the bay area it's one of the sort of special quirks it has is that when you meet somebody they'll voluntarily say you know hey you should speak to this person or you should speak to that person and i think that's pretty contagious <laughs> that's awesome that's what i pride myself on i, I want to make as many introductions as i can and it is cool that people just suggest that they're like just trying to connect the dots like how can i help you um i when i before i, I moved here i've been here for about six years 
And I was, I was afraid that it was just like this really like impossible place to break into and just like super cutthroat and competitive. Cause obviously the best companies are here, but it like could not be more the opposite. So I'm glad you found the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it took a while to realize, but, um, you know, I think, uh, another sort of reference point I have is just that a lot of the initial conversations I had with investors were uh, on zoom. And this is sort of 20, you know, 2019, 2018, when that wasn't really the dumb thing. Like a lot of investors were having remote meetings, but, um, you know, it's just really, really hard, especially when you're trying to partner with somebody for you know, 10 years 10, or, or 10 years plus, um, you know, you really have to trust them. And it's just super hard to trust somebody that you haven't really met a, a huge amount. And, um, you know, I find the best conversations for screening people that you want to work with, whether it's investors or, or employees is just sort of actually riffing with them on, you know, what a specific problem that you're dealing with is, or, um, you know, thinking about new ideas for things that could be built and so on. And, um, yeah, it's just really hard to do that if you're not spending a lot of time with people in person. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, help me with the unique insight that you had in the market that you convince investors on. Um, yeah. Um, so I think the interesting thing about security is that over the last number of years, um, what, what a lot of people weren't able to kind of line up is that you look at these graphs for, you know, the, the compound growth rate of, uh, of security as an industry in general. And, um, you know, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's definitely in the sort of twenties of, of percent, uh, per year, which is pretty serious growth. Um, but there hadn't actually been a huge amount of change in how security products were bought. Um, I think it's an interesting time where, um, if you look at companies like sneak and, and so on that have built like a pretty interesting product, like growth strategy on a security product. Um, there's a few reference points, uh, for that in the sort of mid 2010s and, and so on. Um, and it kind of came obvious that these sort of enterprise legacy, um, you know, security providers or tokenization providers or whatever, just weren't serving the needs of developers. And especially because it was a huge surge in, uh, you know, fintech companies getting started and health tech companies getting started that were driven by better technology and better products The people making the decisions weren't necessarily, um, you know, experienced CISOs. They were individual contributor uh, engineers who were a year or two out of college who, um, you know, valued products based on what they were like to work with every day, rather than necessarily a, you know, a top line value increase or, or cost saving or something. And you can totally have both, but um, I think it's a lot easier to lead with a, a better product. That's just obviously better based on design, ease of integration, and just a general sense of quality than it is to start off with a, you know, top down slide deck for how company X has helped, um, you know, all these other companies save money or, uh, or increase revenue. Yeah, that's, that's good. How did you um, convince them that you were right on this? Like, what did you show amount, a certain amount of research that you did? Because you also mentioned you didn't have a product. So I'm really curious. Yeah, um, I think for, for me, it was that I'd spent so much time just racking my brains on how to implement encryption in the first place. Um, you know, I think even even before I started Evervault, I'd been working in encryption uh, in a personal capacity for, you know, probably five or six years. So um, it's a pretty boring problem space for most people. And I think um, there's a certain sense of, uh, you know, if, if you're an investor and you're looking at a founder who spent five years in uh, a space as boring as encryption, you sort of have to question the like neuroticism there and you know why they're actually focusing on this. And I think if somebody can kind of commit commit themselves to that for a period of time that long, uh, especially when they're, uh, you know, at the time I was, I think like, you know, a, a teenager, well, I was definitely a teenager, but sort of late teens, um, when people tend to be a little bit jumpy uh, about what their interests are. Um, I think that commitment was probably was probably the main thing. But um, yeah, I think it was uh, e even just sort of the reference points for the types of people that, that we were looking to hire at the time. Um, I think the sort of intersection of high quality design and engineering talent, and then people who just knew how to build things securely and robustly, I think was probably the most um, the most compelling thing. But um, I don't, you know, I think it was impossible and still is you know, pretty difficult to say whether, um, whether we're the team to do it.
Yeah, that, that's that's amazing. What, what did you like? So, like, how did you present the actual product? Did you have an MVP? Did you have anything around that, or was it just like, can you tell us any more about that? Yeah. Um, so it's actually something that we uh, still do at Everball today. Uh, before we implement things, we always start off with API documentation, um, especially for a, a developer-first product. Uh, the API documentation is pretty much equivalent to uh, what the UI looks like in a consumer app. So, um, you know, at, at that point in time, I basically just drawn up a spec for what the API would look like for you know doing encryption, making it really easy to process data and making it really easy to share data. Um, although there was no sort of backend logic that actually uh, did any of the stuff, it kind of gave a pretty good idea for what was possible. And, uh, you know, I, I think they did pretty deep due diligence on, you know, whether this sort of developer experience was possible to do for encryption. And, um, yeah, the, the answer is, is definitely yes, but, uh, starting off with the end user experience, I think is the main thing. Um, and yeah, we just kind of kept that through to this day. We've kept that to this day just because it's such a good way of making sure that your products are well-designed and, and well-implemented. That's amazing. Well, um, I'm trying to think of any other things for just, maybe you could consider any other points for, uh, there's just a lot of founders that I'm working with right now that are a bit discouraged trying to get, get the round closed. Um, there's a great founder I'm working with that has had an incredible experience working at some, some really top tech companies, but is in the similar position that you are like believes in what they're, what they're working on, but does not have the product yet because it's a, it's a large technical challenge. Is there any like unique word of advice that you would give to that person? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that um, was definitely a major decision factor for when we raised our, our follow-on Series A uh, was just how quickly things changed, even in the absence of uh, you know, huge amounts of capital. Or um, so, you know, if you're going through a process where you're meeting all these investors, um, you know, you're getting a load of nose, but you're not actually spending a huge amount of time on product. Um, a lot of the time, if you're spending, if you're meeting an investor for three or four or five months, if you can show every time you come back that you know, things are actually progressing in the right direction, I think people. Um, and it's really, you know, I fought, I fell into the same trap. It's really difficult to not treat fundraising as a full-time job, especially when you're a solo founder, you don't have a team, you don't have a product, you don't have customers. Um, you still have to kind of keep chipping away. Uh, firstly, because it's the right thing to do. You know, you're wasting time by not doing it. Um, but uh, I think if you're kind of leaving the impression that you're able to do things with limited resources uh, in the absence of investor interest, I think that's, um, that's a pretty compelling reason to, to back the founder. It just sort of shows a, a certain degree of relentlessness that I think is, is super important, especially as... Uh, you know, more and more companies get started. Uh, the biggest differentiation is uh, is more in the sort of founding team and um, their psychology than it is on the sort of specific implementation of the SaaS product they're building or whatever the case might be. Um, but also just, uh, you know, venture historically has been about building uh, and inventing new technologies that kind of just take a long time to build. Um, I think because there's been so many companies that got started in the last um, you know, five or 10 years where, you know, they got started six months later, they were at a million dollars an hour, or, you know, growing like 20, 30% a month, very, very easily. Um, there's been this sort of expectation from founders that you need to make a quick book. And I think a lot of the time people make short-sighted product decisions because of that. Um, I think if you're genuinely solving a really interesting long-term problem, um, and you're showing sort of short-term progress towards it, um, I definitely wouldn't shrink your time horizons just to, uh, meet, uh, you know, the, the ability to kind of generate a quick book based on what you think an investor might be interested in. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's such great advice. It's so easy to do that, especially in a 2021 kind of economy of uh, fundraising. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, because you know, capital is just a tool. Um, it shouldn't dictate how you build your company. Like sure, building a venture back company is a little bit different to you know, bootstrapping a product, but um, the fundamentals are the same. If it was possible to build a super long-term technical project, while bootstrapping, I think a lot more people would do it, but, um, you know, sometimes it's just, uh, it's a necessary evil. Um, not to say that capital is, is 
uh, is an evil thing or, or investors are bad or anything. I think they're they're great, um, but you definitely need to be sure that the company that you're building is suited for um, that way of, of building. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. What's the best way to reach out to you? Is it Twitter or LinkedIn? Uh, I would say Twitter. Uh, my handle is rcurrent, which is just my uh, my surname all jumbled up. Um, yeah, Twitter Twitter's great. Or email at chain at everwallet.com. Boom. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Top VC Podcast. I'm your host, Adam O'Donnell. This is way more than just a podcast. It's a community, and I'm personally on a mission to help founders in whatever way I possibly can. So send me an email, adamfodonnell at gmail.com, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. Boom.